Perhaps one day, my epitaph will read, Here lies Amanda. She loved this song. Until then, I hope Cover Story will speak for my love of music and lyrics. As a kid, I got stuck in my head sometimes, and music seemed to be the only way out. Hours were spent in my bedroom, making mixtapes for a select few, with the hopes of turning them onto something new while carefully curating the unforgettable classics for them. A few months ago, I found a mix I made way back in 1991. While it may not be my finest mixtape, it still holds up today. And that's pretty fucking cool. The idea for Cover Story came to me at many different angles. Most acutely, while sitting on my porch, listening to music on my own or with some friends. I'd hear a cover, or an original I thought was a cover, that would just blow me away. It begged the question I'd often ask my late night, early morning porch regulars. Okay, so tell me a cover song you like better than the original, and what makes it so great? Many late night musings on the porch ensued. Heated debates ensconced in laughter and cigarette smoke swirls solidified some songs that Cover Story wants to share with you. This podcast is produced by me, Amanda McGovern, and Matthew Ernest Filler, a.k.a. Filler. Filler and I grew up across the street from one another, and we bonded over music, surfing, and late-night shenanigans on the porch. Filler spent the last decade touring with a number of notable bands and musicians. He's fortunate to have made a career out of music as a composer for film and television. I am thrilled that he signed on to help me produce this podcast and bring his own expertise and passion to the table. Filler's original compositions are interspersed throughout our episodes, and I know you'll dig them. We hope you enjoy today's podcast, and thanks so much for listening. I like things that are romantic and violent at the same time. And, you know, leather and lace, sugar and spice, I kind of just always like that dichotomy. That was Jill Kargman. Jill is a New York Times best-selling author of 10 books, including Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave and the creator and star of the scripted comedy Odd Mom Out. So I'm super psyched about this episode. Not only do I get to speak with an old high school friend who is super talented and could be a rock star in her own right, I also get to discuss two of my all-time favorite artists, the man in black, Johnny Cash, and Bob Dylan. Sprinkle in some Nine Inch Nails and Guns and Fucking Roses, and well, we have a great show. Two of my favorite things are sitting on my front porch, smoking a pipe of sweet hemp, and playing my harmonica, says Abraham Lincoln. And what is more typical of Americana than Abraham Lincoln? Perhaps the porch and some music, but not much else. I'm Amanda. And I'm Filler. This is Cover Story, a podcast about music and the countless conversations we've had on a porch by the ocean. And one of those conversations I've been kicking around in my head and on my porch with Filler and some of our friends is about that moment when you're listening to a cover song and you feel so connected to it and you wonder if it's better than the original. I've often shunned cover songs, especially Dylan covers, because I was so partial to the original. But I'm finding more and more some of the covers are better than the original. Right. So, you know, today we're going to be talking about two two covers, right? Mm-hmm. And you brought up Dylan because we're going to be talking about Knocking on Heaven's Door. Um, but first, we wanted to dive into 
Hurt, originally Nine Inch Nails, and the amazing uh, Johnny Cash cover that seemed to connect with so many people on this on this deep level that only Johnny Cash can connect. It's almost like Johnny Cash took this this otherwise brilliant song, but very dark song. Totally. Um, and he brought some sort of optimism to to the pain. Yeah. You know, I can completely, you know, remember actually where I was the first time I heard his cover. I was driving in, I was living in Boston at the time, and I was driving on the highway back from work, and they played it. And I remember thinking, Jesus, like, he, he he's so embracing sort of the pain and anguish of the Nine Inch Nails song in such a raw way. It really struck me. And then I think, you know, the reason why it just stayed with me for so long after and kind of became the starting point for me and hurt is just where he was in his life when he wrote right. that you know because right. he was he was close to the end of his life. close to the he end of his sick. life he just lost his you know june carter cash right. and you really i mean few songs out there kind of uh you just you get that sense like immediately right. you know and you know when i first heard it i didn't really think of it in terms of is this better than the original because I think they're they're kind of apples to oranges. Totally. But you're right. You knew immediately that he made it his own. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's kind of funny because people forget what the original sounds like. And, and I even had forgotten what the original sounds like because when the original came out, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Um, and you listen to the Johnny Cash version and you think, wow, this is so stripped down. You know, this is so stripped down compared to... Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. But actually, when you go back and you listen to both of them, Trent Reznor's version is one of the most uh, sort of, it's almost uncomfortably bare yeah. production-wise, especially considering all the other tracks on, on, on that album yeah. that are Downward like hev- heavily electronic. Right. Mm-hmm. This one is just hauntingly, I mean, there's not even any effect on the vocal. Mm-mm. It's like you're in the room with him, mm-hmm. and it's... And it's brilliant in that way. So actually, both both versions are very stripped down. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, you know, like that that intro, like the beginning of mm-hmm. of Nine Inch Nails version, is like that's like the hook, and that's like the build up and the haunting part. Which is interesting because it's just ambience. Yeah. But somehow it's the production yeah. that's the hook, and, it, and 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 that's like the thing about Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. The production is is just as much the hook as any vocal hook. Yeah. Or any or any melody. And with with Cash's version, it's just like I hurt myself today. Right. You know, straight off the bat, like right. coming. He's coming out of the gates. There's no lead up. There's no intro. It's just I hurt myself. Hurt was originally recorded in 1994 for the Downward Spiral album, which I think was their their second studio recording. Um, and so he was following up their debut, which uh, was really critically acclaimed. And there's a lot of story behind their their debut and the success that they had, um, and then a lot of conflict with record labels and such. Um, Trent Reznor. Obviously, a brilliant guy, not just as an artist, but also um, a brilliant guy in protecting his own intellectual property. He 
worked things so nothing was going to get between him and sort of the inspiration that he was opening himself up to. He was opening himself up in in pretty dark ways. Um, He was going through a lot of his own depression and things like that, but he wasn't going to treat it. He was going to he was going to open himself up to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing that we definitely do know is that he was really influenced production wise and process wise uh, by Iggy Pop, by Bowie. There's all sorts of stuff that really literally does nod to late seventies, Berlin era Bowie and um, Iggy Pop's the idiot. Yeah. And I think um, when thinking about this song as a cover, to me, what was interesting was what were sort of the motivators behind um, Cash. Like, who came to him? Mm-hmm. Um, was it his idea? And right. uh, turns out, as many people know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, that Rick Rubin was the one that presented the song to him. And it took Cash about 100 listens of the song. He listened to it over and over again, 100 times, before he was like, yes, I definitely uh, I want to do this song, right. and I want to make it my own. And to him, he thought, you know, given everything he'd been through in his life, in his addiction battle, in his personal life, and everything like that, in his career, um, walking away from certain labels, you know, things like that, that he, he felt that this was a true kind of anti- uh, drug song for him and and that's how that's what he brought to the table right when uh trent reznor first heard cash's version he was so taken aback he was like dude this is like such a personal song for me and to hear somebody else's voice he wasn't sure that they were actually gonna record it right um so when ruben sent him the 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 copy of it he was he was taken aback and it was only until he saw the video um of cash uh directed by mark romanek that he was like, damn, you know, this is like, he, he he got it. He gets it. And it's his song. I mean, it it takes some really serious risk. People don't usually put themselves um, in the shoes of, of an artist that would do something like this or in the shoes of, of a famous artist at all. Usually yeah. they're just an enigma to everybody. Um, but to take that kind of risk, I'd say most of the time, probably you fall flat on your face when yeah. you sing about that, especially something when you when you sing that um, openly with that much pain most people can't do it right um, and m- most people end up turning off the listener mm-hmm. most people can't do it so you know I guess because you know with for cash in this regard it was so authentic you know right. that pain he felt that was his pain mm-hmm. and that darkness and that loneliness right. and loss sense if you're of gonna, loss if you're gonna do something that stripped down and that forward and and you're not actually feeling it, yeah, it's the authenticity, I, right? I'm not sure that it could that it that it could fly. We were so psyched that Jill agreed to come on as our first guest. As I mentioned, Jill and I went to high school together. She was a badass back then, and she's even more of a badass now. Um, and uh, I'm in the bathroom, so we don't get like. Extra, <laughs> I'm in your bathroom, Amanda. So. I'm all right. Cool. I'm in the kitchen with a quick knife. <laughs> nice. There we oh, go. Okay. <laughs> I'm a Nine Inch Nails fanatic. I think Trent Reznor is really the voice of my high school and college years because I just blared his music incessantly. And I just feel like there's a raw emotion and more of a creepy um, tinge to it. And I really like his, you know, brings out my inner goth. I like things that are romantic and violent at the same time. And, you know, leather and lace sugar and spice I kind of just always like that dichotomy I have 
a lot of tattoos, but they're like sweet. There's ribbons and, you know, hearts and things, but there's something about the needle and the ink that's a little bit edgier. So I like those contrasts. Um, it's, if I had to pick one group or artist that is most aligned with me, it would be Nine Inch Nails. I've, I've always felt that way because there's such ob- the obvious dark side of, of it, but then there is so much beauty in Trent Reznor's lyrics as well. And a lot of his songs are so romantic. And someone was talking about the most romantic songs ever, and I think for me they would all be Nine Inch Nails, The Perfect Drug, Something I Can Never Have. There's the melancholia and, you know, unrequited love in a lot of it, but they're beautiful. Because I have a very faint um, and sensitive cheesometer, so a true ballad that's supposed to be romantic just gives me douche chills down my spine, and I've heard something that's a little bit darker, and I think I'm, that's a, I'm on that page. So interesting. Yeah, yeah so um, this is, you know, a sort of that vengeful love song, but I absolutely love it. The Johnny Cash version, I'll be honest, it made made Johnny Cash go up in my esteem because I've never, I didn't dislike Johnny Cash. I'm just not a country person, and I know it's cool to love that vintage country era, but I never did. By the way, incidentally, I read a study from Stanford that people who like metal and rock are nicer human beings, so there. Um, You know what? We get, get our aggression out by listening to music that's like full throttle. And, That's it. You know, look at all these. Look at these sensitive country people who are like passive aggressive. Bless her heart, and then they also give you an air kiss that pissed down your leg. You know, also like that people way. who who use profanity are smarter. Another study. So <laughs> I, must, anyway. I must be brilliant then. Yeah, I'm fucking brilliant. <laughs> um, there's so many instruments that come into question that almost sound when I'm listening to to Nine Inch Nails. They'll be like an instrument that. I'm picturing an attic and it hasn't been tuned and you, you mm-hmm. find something in the corner. And that's what I love about it is you're not quite sure. It's not a typical, you know, there's a lot of electronics and instruments utilized in different ways. What Jill is alluding to is the result of a unique production philosophy. This points directly to the huge influence that Berlin-era David Bowie had on Trent Reznor's approach to production. But Trent brought something entirely new to it. For Trent, it wasn't about just tweaking knobs until you found an interesting sound. It was about creating an entirely new sound palette, or a sonic alien planet, one inhabited by the narratives of a supremely unique and talented artist. It's not dependent on just the way it was produced, or just stripped down to just a guitar and a vocal. And And it's still a great thing, right? It's it's just a a, a great song. All right, Jill. We'll let you get on on your way. Thanks again so much. Sure, my pleasure. So Jill's love affair with Nine Inch Nails has gone on for about as long as my love affair with Dylan. And when we talk about cover songs, we have to talk about one of the most covered artists of all time, Bob Dylan. Knockin' on Heaven's Door is just one of those songs that growing up, I identified with a Guns N' Roses cover for so many reasons. I mean, let's not get started on Use Your Illusion 2, the impact that album had on me. Again, I was back in high school, and I remember heading downtown to this rinky-dink local record store the day the albums came out. I played them both endlessly in my dorm room, and even went so far as to bluff my way through a history assignment by playing the class Civil War rather than writing a response to the book we were supposed to read. 
Anyway, at the time, I thought Axel was covering a Clapton song, and as I got older and dug deeper into Dylan, I just became so drawn to Dylan's original version. His version was written for the soundtrack to one of my favorite movies, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I mean, the soundtrack has some real gems on there, but today, Filler and I are going to talk about Knocking on Heaven's Door. You know, it's it's funny in your intro there. Um, you thought, it, I think you said you thought it was a Clapton song, or, or you yeah. you thought it was a Clapton song at first, and I thought that for years too. Um, you know, let me give myself the excuse of saying I was a kid when this Guns N' Roses version version came out. So yeah, you weren't a um, senior, a seasoned uh, wasn't sophomore a, in high school like I was. No, no. <laughs> um, so. Um, it's funny because I uh, uh, I actually went back in in our sort of research for this episode. I went back and listened to the Clapton version, and you know I'm sorry to all you Clapton fans out there, and I'm not a big Clapton guy, so I'll, I'll preface it with that. But um, I, I definitely am not a fan of the um, of the Clapton version. So I'm, I'm you're glad. throwing it out there. Yeah, just throwing that out there. I mean, it, it I just, do. I do like Clapton. I don't like that version. Right. That's why I thought, like, oh my god, it's like it, it almost sounds like a weird reggae or yeah, something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he did that with "I Shot the Sheriff" too, you know. Right. Yeah. Maybe it was a little phase he was going yeah. through. Anyway, I didn't. Oh, I didn't. Phase. Didn't research that. But <laughs> me neither. <laughs> but you know, the Guns N' Roses version is is interesting, uh, just because Guns N' Roses was sort of like you know they were the biggest band in the world by leaps and bounds, like at that time for mm-hmm. those few years. Um, and parts of Guns N' Roses has aged well, parts have not, like literally and figuratively. Um, <laughs> they so, were pretty pretty awesome. I saw them last week at <laughs> Madison Square Garden. Right. So so you know now that they're back together, they're they're making a rebound, no doubt. Um, but the I'm really conflicted because I was mm. I was a really big fan when I was a kid, um, and they were the biggest band in the world, and. You know, I never, I just, I, I didn't think with critical ears back then, really. I hadn't developed my taste. My tastes were somewhat self-informed for a kid, but also informed by what was popular. Slash's guitar playing on that cover is fantastic. It's amazing. And Slash's guitar playing in general is something that will always be classic. Yeah. It's his tone. It's his, I mean, he's the kind of guitar player that could just roll out of bed and play and he was just like like the guitar is one of his limbs. Yeah, the electric guitar is one of his limbs. Let me tell you, at that show, I saw them in Vegas, and then I saw them again in, at Madison Square Garden. And I would literally watch him just on stage with his guitar. I mean, he would do these solos that were just like off the off the hook. I mean, it was it was insane. Right. He's he's unbelievable. He hasn't skipped a beat. Um, the thing that there's two things that, um, and hopefully this causes a good debate. But <laughs> there's two things that. Um, about this cover uh, and two things about their sound in general that I struggle with when I go back and listen. Mm -hmm. Um, And this doesn't apply to Appetite for Destruction, which I find to be completely 
completely timeless. Yeah, uh, just a brilliant Absolutely. album through and through. Them at their at at their height to yeah. me. Um, I. I have trouble with Axel's voice on the Use Your Illusions. Huh. Um, it just sounds different to me as an adult than yeah. it did to uh, than sure. it did as a kid. Sure. And I have a little bit of trouble with with the production aesthetic, just right. because um, you know they're coming from these hard rock influences of the '70s, where where everything that was recorded in the '70s and hard rock sounded amazing, yeah. and will will never. It will always stand the test of time. It'll always be this this sort of beacon that that producers look towards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know uh, what we try to emulate, but um, but this is like a funny time in rock uh, when the Use Your Illusions came out in the For early nineties sure. because everything's about to go Nirvana and grunge yeah. and garagey. Even though that stuff is really highly produced, it was sort of put out there under the guise of produced less yeah like the, the, they just hid the, the antidote to right. all the, the motley crew and 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 gnr you know um those albums are like almost like the end of of a certain type of the end of an era of a certain type of rock sure. like take the limo to the liquor store kind of <laughs> like lifestyle you know yeah. um at like six o'clock in the morning but I don't know. You what don't liquor, do that? I, I don't know what liquor stores <laughs> no, open we, at six o'clock in the morning, but I but I, I think it works for <laughs> yeah. And I put my six pack in my baby seat on the back of my bike. <laughs> Times have um, changed. And then I like Instagram it, hashtag it, a picture of that because that's funny. That's domestic dad funny joke. Uh, you know, I didn't realize like what threw me was that they have been. Guns N' Roses had been performing this since 1987 on stage. Like that's when they started. I didn't know that. I didn't know it either. And that's when they started doing this live. And I and I found some videos, and um, uh, one of them was from the Ritz in, in uh, 1988. And right. I think like that's the version. That's the cover. I wish. I wish that that's like, the energy you wish. Yeah, made it to I mean, the because album. I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. I absolutely right. love. Uh, I love. Um, I love their version, but. Um, there's something about that a little bit stripped down to what we were talking about um, earlier, just uh, that is raw. But I mean, so what does. All right. So if you had never heard the Dylan version. Yeah. If I had never. What kind of vibe does the Guns N' Roses version give you? Like when you listen yeah. to the way Axel sings it and the, and the, and the delivery just all around, like, like what, what, what does, if you don't, if you don't even know what half the lyrics are and you just know the theme is knocking on heaven's door and you know, you're a teenager again. Yeah. Like what does that evoke for you? I mean, for me, you know, hearing it as a teenager and, uh, the way Axel's channeling it, it's just like, sort of like such regret and remorse, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I think it goes back to the end of life, you know, and now, right. I, now I'm listening to Dylan's version, which is written for Pat Garrett and the Billy, the kid. And you're imagining this guy, Billy, the kid who's been on the run, you know, trying to outrun and outsmart Pat Garrett and Pat Garrett finally gets the motherfucker, you know? Right. And it's like, it's like the whole song is, it's, it's just really con- Dylan's version rather, you know, really conveys that. Right. Uh, and that's what's beautiful, but it's so connected to me to the film, you right? Know? So it's hard to objectively and, talk about the cover and and yeah. when, what Axel's delivery like. Like, is Axel connected to the lyrics? Like, when yeah, Axel sings, has this, to be right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's it's hard because you're 
it's so the original is so synonymous with the film it's hard to reverse your mind mm-hmm. and try to objectively look at the cover without that context right and you know to me it, it works in that axel's always teetering on the edge of like flipping the fuck out right mm-hmm. um or doing something you know like uh, throwing a wedding cake or mm-hmm. something at somebody else's wedding or something yeah. or diving through it or maybe that's stuff but he brings to it a different you know, element um, sure. and a different vantage point. And, um, you know, but I, I gotta say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm partial to the, to the Dylan version just because yeah. of the, um, it's just so simple and it's so, so, and the version particularly on the soundtrack, you know, but there is this funny other part about, about guns and roses where, you know, it's like, yeah, Axel's reckless, but like in a cover like this, like when they hit the chorus, He's like almost laid back. There's mm-hmm. like a laid backness yeah. about about yeah. um, Guns N' Roses. Like, yeah, everything's fucked up, but we're yeah. just chilling. Yeah. You know, we prefer to sort of exist in this vacuum of chaos. Yeah. You know, and we and we could take it easy in the middle of like we could take it easy while there's fights going on. Yeah. Like this is just what we are. And this is like this is completely disconnected yep. from Dylan. Right. Entirely. Like these are these are completely two different worlds. The only thing that that binds them is rock and roll. And know? I think that's evident in the two styles, right? You've got Dylan's original which is um you feel the vibe, the same vibe throughout the whole song, right? right. You, you can you can start it and you you're feeling one way and it pretty much sits with you for the entire song, right? Whereas I feel when I listen to Guns N' Roses version, there's so many different has the song takes you on you know it's slow it's upbeat they've got that wonky little uh the dial you know the phone call that happens there and you know it's like you're you're disoriented a little bit um and i feel like the dylan version orients me for some reason uh yeah absolutely thank you for listening to cover story we know there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there and we are psyched you've chosen to listen to ours Please visit thecoverstorypodcast.com for our show notes, links to everything mentioned in this episode, and ways to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. So now I'm hoping you'll take a moment and do just a few things for us. We would love for you to subscribe to the Cover Story Podcast so you can stay tuned and download the latest episodes. And share this episode and tell your friends about it. That wasn't so hard, was it? Perhaps if I keep asking you to do stuff for us, I'll have to send you some of my mom's amazing meatballs. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed episode one and we look forward to bringing you with us on the rest of our journey. Episode two will be rolling out soon and we are pretty sure you dig it. Who is Leadbelly and what does he have to do with Nirvana? Thanks again for listening. This is Amanda and Filler signing off. Until next time, look out streets, here we come.